0: Well, Heritage, we do miss you, and we love you, and we look forward to the time where we can gather together again. We are praying for that day to come sooner rather than later, but we will trust the Lord's timing, and we're grateful that we have this opportunity to be in God's Word together this morning and look at Exodus 33. So we're going to be back in the book of Exodus, and we are going to be considering this chapter together. When we left off in Exodus a couple of weeks ago you 'll remember where I hope we left off, which was at a very down moment and a very sad moment uh, for the people of Israel. They had just committed gross idolatry with the, at the at the foot of Mount Sinai among the golden with the golden calf that they constructed. They were confronted in that by Moses, and that 's sort of where we left the story with Moses interceding for them and we left with a big question mark hanging over the rest of this story. How is it going to end? Is this going to be the end of God's dealing among his people? And one of the things we've observed throughout the book of Exodus, I hope, is that the people, not just in Exodus 32, but really throughout the entirety of the book, have given God resistance and tested the resilience of his grace toward them to deliver them, to provide for them, to be their God. They have met Grace from God with unbelief and stiff neckness and rebellion and lack of trust in God. Remember Exodus 14 at the Red Sea prior to God's promise to deliver them, even though He'd already rescued them out of Egypt. Here they were on the bank of the Red Sea with an Egyptian army coming in and they were freaking out and wondering what was going to happen. And in fact, calling upon Moses just to take them back to Egypt because it's obvious that the reason God had brought them out of Egypt was just to kill them, according to their interpretation of the events. When God does deliver them in Exodus 14, they continue on in Exodus 16, and they begin grumbling in the wilderness. But yet God rains upon them manna from heaven, feeding them, taking care of them in the face of their doubts. They fail to keep the Sabbath, and they begin hoarding the food, and it spoils, and God again provides for them in Exodus 17 as they're grumbling in the wilderness again. He provides water from the rock for them. And then in Exodus 32, they commit the greatest sin that they've done up to this point, which is flat-out idolatry in the face of God's grace and forgiveness and power and presence with them. And so the reality is, is that this is a precarious moment in the story, and we have to question whether or not God is going to continue to be with the people. And so this morning, we're going to entertain that thought. What would it look like for God not to continue with his people? So this morning, we're going to look at Exodus 33 under three headings. The first one is the problem with God's presence. In the first six verses of this chapter, at fir- the first three verses of the first six, the first half of those, really sound like pretty good news. Despite their failure, God was saying that he was going to, in fact, take them into the promised land. What God promises to Israel doesn't sound so bad. They get to go into the promised land with all the prosperity, and in fact, in fact, they get an angelic escort to drive out all their enemies. They won't have to deal with any trouble there. There's just one problem. God's not going. Phil Riken has a good line. He says, They were still booked for the promised land, but God had canceled his reservations. In fact, in verse 1, God calls upon, or calls the people not my people, but the people. And in verse 2, he was going to send an, an angel contrary to what he had said in chapter 23, verse 23, which was my angel. So there seems to be a little bit of social distancing going on between God and his people. You know you had to get that in there, right? We had to find some way to smuggle that concept into this sermon. But it is, it's right here. In fact, in verse 3 of chapter 33, we read the following. God tells his people, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you're a stiff-necked people. And in verse 5, he says again, say to the people, you're a stiff-necked people, if for a moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So we're given the reason why God is not going to go up with his people, why he's not going to tarry with them any longer. In fact, he's going to remove... His leadership from them. It's like God offering you a heavenly place, one with no more cancer and no more COVID-19 and no more poverty or taxes or miscarriages or broken hearts or funerals or gossip or abuse or adultery or disease or depression or shady politicians or crooked judges. No more terrorism, no more sin, no more sadness, a place filled with friends and laughter and happiness Just one catch, no God. He won't be there. I wonder how you would respond to that offer. Truth be told, many of us would prefer the promises of God without the burden of relationship with Him. We'd say, sign me up. A relationship with God? Well, that takes time, and He asks things of me. I don't want really a relationship, but, but I could get the promises? Could I get the good stuff? Could I get the blessings? Can I get into Canaan? That's perfect. Sounds like a good deal. Brothers and sisters, that's a tailor-made American, and in fact, it's safe to say human, religion. John Piper says, If you could have heaven with all your family and friends there, if you could be reunited with your loved ones, have all the food you loved and none of the pounds see beautiful sunsets, and have golf, beaches, mountains, fishing, or whatever you are into, but Jesus wasn't there. Is it still heaven? Would you still want to go? You know, this, these first six verses really call us to a heart check. They call us to entertain the idea of having all of God's blessings with none of God's presence. Is that a problem? It calls us to examine what we're really interested in, doesn't it? Do we want God or do we just want His gifts? Would we be happy with heaven, with all those delights, but where Jesus wasn't there? Would we be happy to go to the promised land, even with an angelic escort, whether God would go with us or not? J.C. Ryle paints this scenario vividly in his book, Holiness, when he writes the following He says, But alas, how little fit for heaven are many who talk of going to heaven. When they die, while they manifestly have no saving faith and no real acquaintance with Christ? You give Christ no honor here. You have no communion with him. You do not love him. Alas, what could you do in heaven? It would be no place for you. Its joys would be no joys for you. Its happiness would be a happiness into which you could not enter. Its employments would be a weariness and a burden to your heart. Oh, repent and change before it's too late. See, brothers and sisters, everyone wants a happy life. No one wants to go to hell. Everyone wants a pain-free heaven, whether you're an atheist or a Buddhist or a moralist or a Muslim or a Republican or a Democrat or a libertarian or a socialist. Everybody wants that. But what sets people apart is do you want God? When a true believer hears an offer of a godless heaven, they say, no deal no deal in fact that's what the people of israel say and they're to be commended for their response look at look at what they say verse 4 when the people heard this disastrous word they mourned they mourned you know most of us come to god because we find him useful We need help in a time of crisis, or we need answers, or we need purpose. And if God doesn't deliver, then we move on to someone or something else that we think can deliver. But Moses had come to see God as more than merely useful. And the people of Israel in this moment had come to see God as more than merely useful. They'd come to see him as beautiful. See, there's a difference between seeing God as useful and seeing God as beautiful. If you see God as beautiful, you want God. In spite of all the gifts he might give you, you still want him. But if you just find him useful, you'll take the gifts. But friends, that's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. A Christian loves God not because he's useful, but because he's beautiful. If someone is useful to you, you maintain the relationship until their usefulness ends. But if someone is beautiful to you, you delight in them for their own sake. You don't ask yourself if they can do something for you. You just want them. God is the ultimate prize, brothers and sisters. He's the ultimate reward. God is not a means to any other end, He's the end itself. Many of us have got to ask ourselves a serious question If you were given the choice between everything without God or nothing with Him, which would you choose? Would you choose everything without God or nothing with Him? I hope you would have the same heart, I trust you do, as the people of Israel here. Nothing with Him. Please, nothing with Him. They express great distress at the proposition that is put before them in the first six verses. God says, I'm not going up with you. And they mourn over the prospect. In Genesis 35, Jacob led his family in a covenant renewal at Bethel. In doing so, he he has them give up their foreign gods and take out the rings that were in their ears. That doesn't mean that all the earrings are bad, but that there was some association with paganism and pagan idolatry that was associated with these. And that's exactly why Moses calls upon the people of Israel here in verses 5 and 6 to take out their ornaments that are On their ears, because it represents something of their devotion to the golden calf and and their idolatry. And so he calls them to repentance. And in verse 6, we read, Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb, that's Mount Sinai, onward. God says, I want you to get rid of those. Notice the word at the very end of verse 6 they stripped themselves. From this time forward, They're in a period of mourning for their sin. More importantly, they've stripped themselves of all their association with their former idolatry in Exodus 32. They have expressed heartfelt brokenness, contrition, and true repentance over their sin. But listen, brothers and sisters, that doesn't mean God is obligated to go up with them. We we hear in the hymn, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill your law's demands. Could my zeal, no respite, no. Could my tears forever flow. All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. So what we see here is even though they are contrite and even though they are broken, that doesn't mean their sin's been wiped away and it doesn't mean God's gonna pledge himself again to be their God and go with them. So that's what we see first of all. The problem with God's presence, namely The problem that God himself has in his justice to not be able to go on with the people of Israel because he would, to do so, would be to consume them in wrath for their sin. Point number two, we see the plea for God's presence. The plea for God's presence. What we see here in verses 12 through 16 is a picture of Moses and his intercession for the people. Moses cannot bear the thought in verses 12 through 16 that God might not be present among his people. He says he can't do this on his own, and he wants God to go with him. Look at verse 12 again. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you'll send with me. See, Moses is very, very aware that he cannot do this. You remember in the beginning of Exodus, he was quite confident that he could do this. But then progressively throughout this book, He's been put in a place of greater and greater weakness and greater and greater dependence upon God. That's what he does with us as his people. Moses says that he can't do this by himself. And in verse 14, God assures Moses that he will go with him. Now that you is singular, not plural. That is, Moses, you're my man, you're my mediator, I will go with you, singular. God is assuring Moses that he will be with him, but he's not going to be with Israel. And that's not enough for Moses. We see Moses pleading for God to be present among his people. Look at verse 15. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, So that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. See, what Moses is directly doing is he's making this a congregational reality, not just a personal one. He's saying, look God, it's not enough that you go with me, it's that you go with us. Because you have called me to lead your people. You've not called me to be an independent maverick follower of you, you've called me for a specific purpose, and that is to lead your people. So how can you be with me if you're not going to be with us? That's Moses' logic. And the request that he puts forward is really a remarkable one. The word translated presence in verse 14 and 15 is actually the Hebrew word for face. And so, in effect, Moses is requesting the face-to-face relationship that he enjoys with God to be the face-to-face reality that Israel experiences as well. God, He wants God among his people. And he won't have it any other way. That's the plea for God's presence. And we see something, we're going to come back to this in just a moment, but we see something of the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ for his people, for us as well, in the way Moses pleads on on the behalf of the people of Israel. See, for Christ, to not have us is a no-win for Christ. Christ doesn't just want to be exalted by himself. Christ wants to lead us in his own exaltation. He wants to be among us and with us. It's not a selfish pursuit for Christ in the sense that, that he's just considering his own interests. No, he, according to Philippians 2, is the great example of considering others' interests ahead of his own. He's the one who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being in the likeness, being born in the likeness of men. And suffering to the point of death, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that was above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue should confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But he did that, as we saw last, a couple of weeks ago in Hebrews 2, so that he might bring many sons to glory. Point number three, we've seen the the problem with God's presence. We've seen the plea for God's presence. Now let's see the promise of God's presence. Here we see the Lord respond on the basis of his relationship with Moses and what he says is nothing short of stunning. Look at verse 17. The Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. That is, I will go up with my people, but wait, does that create a problem for you? It should. How is this God so arbitrary? It seems I mean, how can he do that on what basis is God making this decision? I thought, wait, in the beginning of the chapter, he 's not going to go up with, but then Moses offers him a little prayer, and then now he 's going to go up i mean who, how fit, is God just wanting to be argued with? Is he just like a good fight? He likes a good tussle. He doesn't want to make decisions without people arguing with him about it. Some people are kind of like that. right? They, they just want a good argument. They just, like, you know, they just want to enter into a little fray with somebody before they make it. Is that the way God is? Is he just kind of like that? No. In fact, he makes this decision on two firm foundations. And we're going to look at those now. The first is the basis of his own character and the second is in his work through Moses. So first of all, I want you to notice that God is making this decision to be this way, to continue to go with his people because that's who he is. This is part of his nature, part of his character. Look at verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. See, God is good. But keep reading. I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. In other words, this is the essence of my character. This is what I'm like, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. See, the whole passage is a reminder of God's grace. The Lord draws near And he reveals his character in a striking way. He manifests his grace here in that he deliberately chooses to be gracious. That's who God is. God is free and sovereign in his grace. He can treat people mercifully if he wants to. He's not compelled. He's not obligated. His choice emanates from his own nature. It's not a response to how the children of Israel have acted. It's not because they're so lovable or because they've been so obedient. It's not because, it's not based on circumstances of the golden calf, but it's in spite of the circumstances of the golden calf. God's grace comes from who he is. He is gracious. He is good. He is merciful. He is compassionate. Therefore, he chooses to be compassionate, gracious, and merciful. That's what we're seeing here. It is who God is to be gracious and merciful to sinners. But friends, if that were the only foundation, you would have to ask, but is God not just? Is he not also just? I mean, yes, he's gracious. Yes, he forgives sin. But can he just do that willy-nilly? Can he just do that because he wants to? Well, that would call into question his justice. And that's why this second point is so important. Because notice again, verse 17, on what basis is God doing this? Verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight. See, he's relating to the people on the basis of their mediator, on the basis of the one he has chosen. Now, what kind of relationship did did Moses have with God? Well, that's why we have this sort of strange interlude in the middle of the chapter. Verses seven through eleven talk about this experience that Moses would have in the tent of meeting. That he had this intimate, face-to-face relationship with God. Look at some of the highlights of verses seven through eleven. Now Moses used to take the tent. This is not talking about the tabernacle, this is a a different tent that he, in which he would meet with God. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Now, not to be confused. The tent of meeting, there's a tent of meeting here that's referred to in a couple of different ways. Sometimes the tabernacle itself is called the tent of meeting. But this is obviously not talking about the tabernacle because this is not sitting in the midst of the camp. This is outside of the camp. So whenever Moses went out, verse 8, to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. And when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend, that's a sign of God's presence, and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. So God is relating to the people on the basis of this intimate relationship he has with Moses. God meets with his people, And his presence is symbolized by the pillar of cloud. And when the people saw this, they would worship because they knew that God was present among them. But the significance of Moses as mediator is highlighted. As he's on the way to the tent of meeting, the people would stand because he's their representative. And they would rise in respect and stand at their tents and worship while Moses was in the tent meeting with God. God was sending a message to the people and the people were receiving the message. You need a mediator and he's our one. So several times in this chapter, the, the favor of God is mentioned that Moses enjoys with God. In verse 12, and verse 13, verse 16, verse 17, God's favor rests upon Moses. Now, the Lord said to Moses, I've heard you and I will answer, but it's on the basis of his character that he's gracious and merciful and on the basis of his mediator that he has chosen. We'll see this again, Lord willing, next week when we come to Exodus 34. But Moses attaches his plea for God's presence to God's favor toward himself. Notice his language. If I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, go with us. Moses then stakes all of God's expressions of delight in him as the basis of God's answering his prayer to draw near to his people. He says, God, if you love me, if I found favor in your sight, let them find favor in your sight. Notice again how the grounds of the security of God's people in the covenant doesn't depend upon things that are in them. It doesn't depend on their behavior. It depends upon the things in God and the things about his mediator, not about the people. And brothers and sisters, that is a gospel word for us. That's the blessing you're seeing, foreshadowed here. In that blessing, you're seeing a foreshadowing of the specialness of Jesus the Mediator with the Heavenly Father. The Father knows Christ face to face because He's the Son of the Father and there's no one who has found the favor the Son has found with the Father. So that the Father twice from heaven in the Gospel says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. And if we are joined to Him by faith, if we're joined to Christ by faith, God says the same thing about you. He treats you with grace for Christ's sake. Because Christ is the one who has favor with God. The passage highlights the fact that our security is based on something outside of ourselves. And praise God, this means our inconsistency does not have the last word. Because I don't know about you, but I'm inconsistent. I'm up and I'm down and... I'm doing well and I'm doing not so well, and I'm walking in holiness and I'm struggling with sin. And I'm trying to manifest the fruit of the Spirit, and it seems like the flesh keeps grabbing hold. I'm inconsistent. We're inconsistent, but there's one who isn't, and that's who this is this chapter is pointing us to. Look quickly, I can't resist not just dipping quickly into Exodus 34 even though we're coming back to it look at Exodus 34 just one verse verse 27 the Lord said to Moses write these words for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel we're going to see next week that God renews the covenant with them and God makes the covenant with Moses and with Israel and him God is saying, "Moses, I'm reinstating this covenant with you and I'm reinstating this covenant with Israel in you." Just to make it clear to Israel that with that without a mediator they don't exist. And brothers and sisters, without our mediator we're doomed to die in the wilderness too. Without our mediator interceding for us, we're judged. Without our mediator petitioning for us, we're condemned. And of course, Moses was just a shadow, a foreshadow of Jesus Christ. And this passage is reminding us that we need God's mediator, Jesus Christ. That without him, there's judgment. That without him, there is punishment. There is condemnation. There's no hope of God's presence being with us. There's only wrath. But in Christ, there is covenant grace and covenant mercy. And we can rejoice in that because it's not dependent ultimately on us. You might think, I've blown it terribly this week, this morning, the last 15 minutes as I've been at home with my kids trying to watch this live stream. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you this morning that God is not gracious to you because of anything in you. God is gracious to you because of everything in him. And God does not love you and care for you and redeem you because you're lovely. He loves you because he loves you, and he loves you for Christ's sake. And Christ is all you need. Christ is the only mediator you need. You don't need to add to it all of your New Year's resolutions and mid-year resolutions and end-of-March resolutions. You can just fall completely on Jesus, and Jesus is enough. Jesus is the one on whom you stand. You are treated with favor because he finds favor in God's sight. God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy and he will most certainly have mercy on anyone who comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're listening to my voice this morning or watching this live stream and you've yet to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, I can't think of a better way to commend him to you than the beauty that we see here. The one who has a face-to-face relationship with God is offering you the very access to God that he enjoys. The very love of God that he experiences will be experienced by all those who believe in him. Do you not want that? Or are you just fine with life on this earth or blessings on this earth, but you don't really care about God? Well, brothers and sisters, friends, one day this life is going to go away and it may not be through a worldwide pandemic that we are brought to an end, but it may be through something else. But certainly there will come a day and we... We need to get heaven into us now if we ever hope to get into heaven. And that heaven comes into us by calling out to the Lord Jesus Christ and asking him to forgive us of our sins and asking him to give us the Holy Spirit to transform us into the people who so desire him that we, we would rather say nothing without you rather than everything with you. Let me conclude with four quick points of application. First of all, we have a need That we can't overlook. We have a need we can't overlook. As our Pastor Keith and Pastor Thad have reminded us, and even as the songs that our music team has led us in this morning have reminded us, we need God. And maybe we felt that more keenly as a gift of God in these days of quarantine. Praise his name that he's helped us to feel how weak we truly are. While there are wonderful benefits to the gospel, don't forget that the greatest benefit and the greatest gift you receive when you become a Christian is Christ. He's the point. To say to someone, pray this prayer and you can be forgiven and go to heaven when you die is not a mark of regeneration. It shows no new life. It takes no new life to do that. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but not everybody wants God. 1 Peter 3.18 says that the goal of the gospel is God. Christ died. The righteous for the unrighteous, not just to bring you to heaven, but to bring you to God, it says. To bring us to God. God, as John Piper said, is the gospel. He's the ultimate good news that the gospel gives. Number two, we have a privilege we must not neglect. Moses had a private tent where he met with God, but brothers and sisters, how do we meet with God? We don't have to go anywhere. We do not have to pitch a tent. As believers in Christ, we're the tent. We are the, pl- the ones in whom God dwells. And in this gathering, which we long for to desire, because God has put it within us, to gather together, we are a living tabernacle of God by His Spirit. We have access to go to God right now through His Spirit. We are the tent. You take the tent everywhere you go because God's presence is in you as a believer. What a privilege we have. We have a far greater privilege than 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 the people of Israel experienced when they looked out in the distance and saw Moses meeting with God in the tent. Don't neglect that privilege. Don't neglect that access that you have to go to God. In, this, in these times where we have a little more free time and our schedules are maybe... Off kilt, don't neglect the opportunity that we have to commune with God, to spend time with God in prayer. Number three, we have an assignment we cannot complete. Just as Moses said that unless God went with him, there's no point in trying. Brothers and sisters, we're in the same boat. We have a mission called the Great Commission which is to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that we have commanded, all that Christ has commanded. We don't have a hope to do that on our own. Our hope is in heaven. We need his presence to fulfill his mission. This is why Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. Go therefore and make disciples. And I will be with you always till the end of the age because we have an assignment we can't complete. Acts 1.8, you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you will be my witnesses. What distinguished Israel was not their land. They didn't have it yet. It was not their wealth. They'd been slaves. It was not their culture. It hadn't yet been developed. It was not their righteousness, as we have clearly seen. What distinguished them was the presence of God among them. This is why we don't rely on methods or money or marketing all good things, but rather on the presence and power of God through prayer for accomplishing god 's mission. Brothers and sisters, we need god 's presence to evangelize our friends and family, to love on one another, to care for the needy, to parent our kids, to live as godly singles and husbands and wives, and reach the nations. We must have God. We have an assignment we cannot complete in our own strength. Unless the Lord builds the house, Psalm 127, we labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, we keep watch in vain. Thankfully, we have our brother Corey out in the lobby right now keeping a little security for us, but he's watching in vain. Unless the Lord is watching over us, we must have God. May God use this time to remind us that we must not attempt to do his work apart from him. We can get so good at just doing church and just having the monotony and just having the predictability that when God does something like this and strips away the privilege of gathering, we realize we need God. We need God. We can't just continue as things are. The ministry of the church can become so mechanical and so mundane, but God gives us gracious gifts like these days to remind us of himself. Fourthly and finally, we have a longing that will not be quenched. The cry of our heart must be the same as Moses' heart. Show me your glory. We were redeemed to be with God and to see his glory. Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Psalm seventeen fifteen but I will see your face in righteousness and when I awake I'll be satisfied in your presence. 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve now we see indistinctly as in a mirror but then face to face. 1 John 3, 2, we shall see him as he is. That's our great desire, brothers and sisters, is to see God and to be with him where he is. Let this passage inform us and teach us we have a need we can't overlook, we have a privilege we cannot neglect, we have an assignment we can't complete, and we have a longing that can't be, but one day will be, finally quenched when we are in the presence of our King forever. Let's pray together as our music team comes to lead us. Father, how grateful we are that you show mercy to whom you show mercy and you are gracious to whom you will be gracious thank you for being gracious to us to those of us who are in christ right now you have demonstrated amazing unlimited patience and grace toward us we thank you for receiving us for christ's sake we thank you that you favor us in the favored one that we are reconciled in our mediator to you, that we enjoy access to you and freedom as your children to worship you and walk with you because Christ has died and risen and ascended on our behalf and lived the life that we could have never lived. So thank you. Thank you for our conquering mediator. Thank you for the one that Moses points us toward in this chapter, reminding us that he is our hope, that he is our strength, that he is the one in whom we rest, in whom we trust, and by whom we are brought into endless and everlasting grace, mercy, and favor with you. For all those who are yet outside of Christ, we pray that you would draw them in by your immeasurable beauty, unveil their hearts, take away all the blindness, and help them to see Christ. Show them your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Mark.